You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My grandmother died uh, right when Passion was in previews. And this was her business card from the bank she worked at. Aww. But she sent me the New York Times article on Patti Lapone being fired from Sunset Boulevard earlier that spring, which mentioned that Patty had been offered the role of Fosca in Passion. Isn't that crazy, everybody? The the business card my grandmother sent me, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but maybe she'll do the Sondheim. Love, Grandma. And um, so... Grandma uh, for the win. For the win. And I mean, it was only because she died that I was in New York for her funeral that I was able to go see Passion on Broadway. See, even Um, from beyond the grave, she was was taking care of you. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical Passion by Stephen Sondheim, which was a listener request from both Lydia and Maria. Maria, who wrote in from Russia, wrote, quote, I still feel deeply moved by this score as it provokes such strong feelings equally by ravishingly beautiful music and by the complexity of its characters. Already getting chills, Maria. I must admit I hated Fosca at the beginning. I pitied her during the flashback sequence, and there is so much happening in in the finale, I believe is what she wanted to say. I often praise Stephen Sondheim for his female characters, and Fosca is definitely among the most significant ones and is the most difficult. That was so sweet of her to write all that out. I love when listeners go into why they uh, why they want us to cover these shows. Anyway, thank you, Maria and Lydia. Here to discuss this fascinating show that also gives me all the feels is someone whose bio I'm going to read directly from Wikipedia because it's amazing. Ben, I don't know if you've heard, if you've read this. <clears throat> I think I wrote it. Oh, did you really? Okay, uh, it's even better. Ben Rimmelauer is an American theater director, writer, producer, and performer. He is best known for writing and performing the critically acclaimed long-running hit off-off-Broadway solo play, Patty Issues. He is also a contributing writer for Playbill.com and the Huffington Post. Rimmelauer is openly gay. Everyone, please welcome Ben Rimmelauer. Yay! I'm so happy to be here, Jack. That was the full bio. I just love that it, like the, the button was openly gay. I, well, I didn't write that. You know, I think, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I am one of those losers who's responsible for their own Wikipedia page. But it's I a think good Wikipedia, it though, gets... because it takes you directly to your 
website, which is Gorge. Which, which is more updated. <laughs> I will give myself that. No. Um, but, you know, like American and like openly gay. Like, I mean, I am those things, but I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> Guilty, write them in but... my bio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As charged. Exactly. Um, yeah. Ben, so grateful you're here. You are a true Renaissance man for sure. I feel like you've done so many cool projects. And your latest one is this new podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network, shameless plug, called Giants in the Sky, colon, how Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods, which I'm sure I will love and all the listeners of Amer- uh, Musical Theater Podcast will love. But in addition to writing Into the Woods, Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine created Passion, which makes you kind of perfect guest for this. So talk to me a little bit about what attracted you to create your pod and specifically focus on these collaborators. Sure. Well, um, a thing that I, and it's funny now that I'm in the, throes of editing which i'm so sorry (laughs) i uh i well i I, the worst part is just that i hear myself repeating the same things you know uh there is nothing more confronting to a gay guy than (laughs) having to listen to yourself talk for hours i mean i've long ago i mean i'm i just turned 47 so i've gotten over like how my voice sounds like i just smelled like you know chocolate chip cookies or something (laughs) but (laughs) but um but i just keep hearing myself say to everybody what's what's embarrassing about hearing myself say this phrase to all my guests on the pod about into the woods is that um i guess every time i say it to them i try to act and play it off like i'm just coming up with the idea yeah, fresh you're keeping moment. it fresh like an and actor. i hear myself say it a hundred times which is that into the woods for many people especially younger generations my age and younger has been kind of like a gateway drug to certainly to sondheim and to musical theater for many of us and even just to theater for many of us and it's because of that incredible american playhouse broadcast that james lapine uh, filmed the cameras. I mean, he was really the the screen director for that, in addition to it being obviously his stage production. Wow. And that's why it's captured so beautifully and with this definitive original cast. It's iconic. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, so many of us, um, you know, really, in a sense, grew up on that video. And, and I'm certainly no exception in that uh, I was really in my uh, middle school years, coming into my deep obsession with musical theater. And and the original thing that uh, I fell for was Patti LuPone and Evita. And I was sort of just branching out from Patti LuPone. The musicals that I would listen to were Anything Goes and um, Les Miserables, you know? Yeah. And then there was this right in that sweet spot of my impressionable youth in 1992, when I was 16, there was the Sondheim celebration at Carnegie Hall that Patti was in. And so was, uh, of course, Into the Woods star Bernadette Peters mm. and Liza Minnelli and a million fabulous people, Betty Buckley. That was broadcast on PBS and the double album was released and I really loved it. And then I discovered the video of Into the Woods. And so that led me to Sunday in the Park with George, which I really, um, you know, in some ways I think that uh, obviously Into the Woods was more accessible to me uh, on some levels. But in other ways, I think Sunday in the Park with George... I became more passionate about um, 
the, my because my in to musical theater always was these sort of diva vocal performances. You know, gotcha. that's why I was such a fan of Patti Lapone's. And you know, while I loved Bernadette as the witch, and of course Joanna Gleason and everybody else in Into the Woods, right. Bernadette as Dot, you know, to me is really one of the great you know musical theater uh, leading lady vocal performances. And it's and also even though it's not James Lapine exquisitely directing for the screen, it is captured on video with these incredible performances by Bernadette and Evita's Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> and so I really got into that as and well. And Patti Lapone's Mandy Patinkin. And Patty Lapone's <laughs> Mandy Patinkin, yeah. Uh, uh, well, not Patty Lapone's Bernadette Peterson. Right, exactly. Um, so I was really primed then when I was 17 and I was a senior in high school. And all of a sudden there was all this press about the new Stephen Sondheim, James Lapine musical Passion wow. that was about to start previews on Broadway. And here was Stephen Sondheim coming out of the closet uh, in the press for the first time, which meant really a that lot happened to... in the same. Yeah, those were the articles where he first acknowledged in the press being gay and 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 this and spoke about having been in this relationship with this man. I think Peter Jones was his name, um, who he had been with. I don't know, maybe for a couple of years at that point, and then was with for several years after that. But. Huh. It was so, well, first of all, just by funny coincidence, my sister and I had been visiting our grandparents in New York that Christmas break of my senior year, and we went to see Forbidden Broadway on New Year's Eve. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a great time, actually. It was an amazing time, and sitting in the audience was Sondheim and Peter (gasps) Jones, and I was like... I mean, I'd kind of thought Sondheim was gay, and here he was with this, like, hot, like, 30-something guy, <laughs> and I was like, I wonder if that's his boyfriend. And my sister and I were at the time appearing in our high school production of A Funny Thing Happened in the Way of the Forum. Oh, my gosh. And so you we guys. went over to him after the show, and we were like, um, hi, we're big fans. <laughs> we're doing Forum right now, you know. Um, and he was, of course, very sweet and generous to us. Because um, he was. Because as, as he notoriously Documented. You know, was. And culture in general for us ancient dinosaurs, there really wasn't a lot of By gay the way, representation. You're looking great, Ben. Thank you, Doc. Yeah. But you know, when I was a younger kid, there really wasn't any representation at all of gay people on TV. It started to happen in the mid eighties with like Dynasty and stuff, but it was still really you just never saw it. It wasn't even like we were the bad guys. We were invisible. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that started changing. And the first place that it was changing was theater. And in the same couple of years, I was seeing Angels in America and Kiss of the Spider Woman and Jeffrey and Love Valor Compassion. And you know, it was all in the theater that I was seeing these gay gay roles uh, and gay representation by these gay writers. And so it meant a lot that the artist that I probably already was idolizing most of all, uh, at least as a, you know, a creative artist other than, you know, Patti Lupone, um, <laughs> coming out in this way in the press and in this personal way. And it was so special because my experience prior to that had been falling in love with musical theater and going out and getting these CDs, you know, of these cast recordings and listening to them backwards and forwards. So, but I'd be buying these albums of these shows that had opened a couple years earlier or decades earlier or whatever. But Passion was really incredible for me because here was a show that I was in the know. I was reading the New York Times story on Sondheim or New York Times Magazine or whatever it was 
before they even started previews. Hmm. And then I bought that CD the day it came out. And then when we were in New York in June, I got to see the original cast of Passion just days after they had won the Tonys. Oh you know? my gosh, that's so cool. And so it was, it was really the first time I'd had this experience of being... Actually, that's a lie. I'd had that same experience the year before with the kiss of the kiss of the spider woman and the goodbye girl, but it meant a lot more to me with when passion. It's time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so many things just went through my brain, but I, I think the first one I want to talk about is specifically looking at Sondheim having these very personal uh, revelations or interviews with the press about this very personal show is also coming at a point when. Sondheim has notoriously been criticized for being all head, no heart, right? Yeah. That none of his shows are really willing to go to the love place. And then he literally writes a musical called Passion. Yeah. So in a brilliant way, by being that personally vulnerable as well, he's willing to talk the talk and not just write the words. Yeah. I'm not just writing this musical to prove that I can write a musical about love, but to actually show in my evolution as an artist who I am and what I believe. I think that's really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. The other thing that comes to mind is like how similar my entry point into Sondheim was. It was definitely through the the PBS recording of Into the Woods. I remember visiting like drama teachers because I did, I grew up doing community theater and usually all of the poor directors who get, you know, wrangled into directing community theater for a hundred dollars are teachers And so I'm visiting their classrooms during the summer while they're like getting ready to set up for the upcoming school year. And I think in in one year I I visited two of my friends and both of them had on Into the Woods like in their classrooms while they're like doing bulletin boards. Like they just had it playing. Mm. And I was like, huh, what's that? That Danielle Furlan looks like a little red riding hood. What's going on? And that was definitely my introduction into Sondheim. I, of course probably knew who he was without knowing who he was because of West Side Story, Gypsy, etc. But I became obsessed with Into the Woods. I got the cash recording for Christmas. And then the following year, I had notoriously good grades. Goody two-shoes, people pleaser, That's my that was my thing. Um, and my dad wanting to make me feel like he was proud of me and that he didn't have to worry about my grades was like, you know what? what would you like for this like 4.0 report card? And I said, I I would like <laughs> the cast recordings of Sunday in the Park with George, Assassins, and Passion. And wow. God bless, my father was like, cool. Passion, if I'm being honest, was the one I liked the most. I would play it while I was like falling asleep at night. I just found it so evocative wow. and like just the sound of it. I had never heard and empathically felt anything like this score. And I have a lot of friends that I love and trust um, and respect say that this is probably the most derivative of Sondheim scores, but I don't, even if that's true, I don't care because the way it makes me feel is different from all the other Sondheim shows. Mm. There, are, there are some just musical motifs that in many, the, the moment I hear them, it like sends me somewhere. Mm. How, where are you with this now? Like, do you, because you saw it at such like a young age and at such a, an important time, do you feel like it transports you a little bit when you re- oh, revisit God, it? Yeah. I mean, and I've seen it so many times over the years in different incarnations. And sure. of course, the, there's two first rate um, video productions of it, you know, and um, it really is a part of my um, 
origin story in the mm. way that those that those songs you know even beyond i don't even have an objective opinion about them because they <laughs> because they just are emotional cues for me i mean yes. a, a lot yeah, of music that's a can great be way that way it. it's like i mean why do i cry at the overture of candide it's not like i'm feeling sorry that kunaganda is going to have a difficult life you know <laughs> it's just that it it just it's things that i that listened to a lot when i was young just sort of our time portals in this way that is just really powerful and you know, passion is very, very much that. And, and of course, with passion, it is a, an emo show. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not surprising to me that you getting those cast recordings would have the deeper connection to it. Because, you know, I think part of the reason I loved musicals by Andrew Lloyd Webber was because I didn't have a speaker system or a stereo. I just had a disc man and headphones. And so I would get in bed at night and turn off the lights and put it on. And that was like my, you know, cinema. And if I was listening to like MAME, it was like musical number, lots Mm -hmm. of brass, pause, unrelated musical number, lots of brass, (laughs) you know, as opposed to those Angela Weber shows that were like a storytelling thing that went straight through. And, you know, and 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 you listen to Sunset Boulevard and the strings come in, you're like, oh my gosh, where am I? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, but passion really swirls you up into that. I mean, it just, I mean, what, you know, you I guess in a way it could be called derivative, but it's also, once you're out of the gate, you're just on the ride until the, even though it's not a sung through show, it has a lot of spoken dialogue or, you know, a good amount of spoken dialogue, but the album really takes you through it. It's a fantastic album. It's one of my favorite cast recordings of all time. They bumped up the org- like the amount of players on the album. Mm. So there's like twice as many strings. You know, they they just made the sound huge and it's yeah. really really beautiful. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's talk a little bit about... Uh, kind of what's behind this show. Um, let's start with history. So we're going to go do some Italian history, everybody. You ready for <laughs> this? Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so in 19th century Italy, Italy didn't exist. I did not take European history, AP European history. I was like, get me out of high school. I want to graduate as soon as possible. So I did not, I did not take AP European history. But apparently in the 19th century, Italy was basically conquered by Austria. And so then the latter part of that century was about uh, Italians standing up for themselves and trying to create an Italian state and reunify all of these different areas. So during this time is is when passion takes place. There are all these military dudes and they're 
overwhelming goal is to unite Italy. Now, during this time period, one of the soldiers that was serving the Italian army was this guy by the last name of Tarchetti. And Tarchetti, in addition to being a soldier, was also a writer. And he began writing a novel based on his experiences, which were essentially that he had been in a relationship with a beautiful woman who was married. And also, while that was happening, he began this really kind of twisted, weird relationship with a woman who was not traditionally beautiful at all and, and very ill. And kind of the the push and pull of how he felt about these two women and where his passions led him became the groundwork for this novel that ultimately he didn't get to finish before he died, if I remember correctly. Uh, but that book, what was that book called? That book was called Fosca mm. in 1869. This book was also uh, associated with the Scapigliatura movement, which is the Italian version of Bohemia. So it's about people following their intuition, not just like what society tells you, but like what, oh, what is your heart saying? And, and it was very scandalous, right? Yeah. So this movement, this book, it all uh, resurfaces in the very early 80s, in 1981, when a movie called Passione de Amore is, re- uh, is created. And it's this movie that Stephen Sondheim sees And he talks very, I mean, it's almost like a a moment of clarity. He remembers seeing this film and there's the moment when Fosca, the the traditionally not beautiful character, descends this staircase and she's filmed behind this like opaque glass and it's very, uh, it's very moody, very gothic. And then there's an extreme close-up on her face, and she's quote-unquote ugly. And then there's an extreme close-up on the soldier's face. And he said in that brief moment, he realized, oh my gosh, this movie isn't going to be about her falling in love with him. It's going to be about him falling in love with her. Mm -hmm. And he burst into tears, and he just felt like, I can't wait to see how this happens. Wow. Now, that was the moment that he wanted to turn this into a musical. For the rest of the movie, he's like kind of planning in his head how it's all going to happen. And this doesn't happen a lot in Sondheim's career. Usually yeah. people brought him the yeah. work and said, hey, I yeah. think you'd be great at this. But this was one of the few instances in when he was like, this is my idea and I want to do it. He, at this point, had already been working with James Lapine on Sunday Park with George and Into the Woods, Right. Um, from what you've been able to tell so far, what did they like about, or what did they enjoy about each other as collaborators? Oh, I think that I'm fascinated by their relationship and actually something that, um, I have an interview on my podcast with Ira Weitzman, who was the, um, associate producer and, and a dramaturg and an important force in the development of all these Sondheim Lapine collaborations, as well as, um, you know, a million other shows at sure. Horizons and, and Lincoln Center. And uh, Ira talks about an early conversation he had with Sondheim in the development of Into the Woods, where Sondheim got choked up telling him how much he used the phrase, he said how much James Lapine had done for him and how mm. much he had opened him up. 
<laughs> and have you read? Uh, James Lapine so wrote that amazing book, putting it together about the making gosh, of Sunday Park haven't. George. I, I should. I should. Oh, you have to. And first of all, I will read fun, it when I do my read. Sunday in the Park with George. Unfortunately, because of the podcast, I can only prioritize what, <laughs> what <laughs> your, episode your, I'm going to create. Card is full. But it's uh, it's an incredible book. I mean, and even just as a coffee table book, it's it's great to look at. But mm. but he t- it really shows the sort of courtship. I mean, not that it was romantic, but. Um, but the beginning of their relationship and here's Sondheim who was coming out, you know, Sondheim was the, um, I guess you would say bohemian kid artist who, because of his talent and, uh, his, um, intelligence and his position had been in the sort of mainstream establishment of musical theater from his a very young age, even though he had been sort of the black sheep and not really accepted by them and always not emotional, always not melodic, always not commercial. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of treated like an ugly redheaded stepchild all throughout uh, the 50s and 60s, you know, despite working on some very successful shows. Um, some of the most legendary some of the most legendary, you know, and then he, he gets into this um, amazing collaboration with Hal Prince that, you know, really, you know, just um, galvanizes all of musical theater. And they had this longstanding friendship and this incredible, you know, collaboration and copacetic sort of complementary dynamic. And, you know, they come from the same world and I think understood each other in a deep way, but they were also very different in that you know, Hal Prince is such a kind of big picture type uh, artist and, you know, and Sondheim is so much about the devil and the details. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, among, I'm sure, a million other differences. And then it comes after all these huge landmark successes, it comes crashing and burning down with Merrily We Roll Along. And I think it's even hard for us to understand looking back because to us, it's like, well, A, we all love Merrily. Yeah. I mean, and then B, we're like, so you had an unsuccessful show. Oh, I'm so why sorry did... that after Company it, and Sweeney yeah. Todd, you had one show that didn't work. Yeah. And so <laughs> why didn't, why didn't, you know, why wouldn't they keep working together? But I think that there was this sense of like something had been broken, you know, um, and that. Something uh, just broke, to quote another. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Assassins. Uh, and I think for Sondheim, having, you know, being at a sort of point of midlife crisis in a sense. Mm. And as an artist, you know, needing to find somewhere maybe softer or more nurturing, safer, somewhere different in order to have that creative spark to want to do something else, it wasn't going to be the next Hal Prince show, you know? Mm. And uh, he had seen Lapine's work and enjoyed it. And the idea of this very different direction of being in this nonprofit space. And here's Lapine who comes from a visual art background. And even though at that point he was already um, somewhat established as a playwright and director, it's a really huge departure for Sondheim to go into that collaboration. And, and the style of James Lapine, both on, in terms of what his work is and in terms of his style of working was so different than Hal Prince. And I think Sondheim was so drawn to that and the relationship that they forged as these two sort of sensitive, uh, in a way, quieter artists, you know, smoking weed and sort of exploring without, you know, you know, I think with Hal Prince, any show began with like a meeting in the office and we're thinking this is going to be for next spring's Tony season and, you mm-hmm. know, get the girl in here. She'll get us coffee and she'll take notes. You mm-hmm. know, and this was just like Sondheim and Lapine, like 
going to museums and listening to music and like having weird conversations and just kind of free form, you know, and I think that that was revolutionary for Sondheim. And I think it opened him up, well, to use the phrase that Ira quoted about him, that to create these shows and to do this work that was such a departure from everything he had done before. Wow, that's so cool. I had never considered that. It reminds me of my family's like a tennis family. And I remember at some point, like Andre Agassi was like, he's going to make his, a next come comeback using a, a like a wooden racket. Um, after being this legend, he was totally. going to go back in time and get like back to basics. And and in, in some ways, like Hal Prince's next huge hit was Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Which could not be more different than, say, like an approach to Sunday in the Park with George or Passion. And yet weirdly similar to Passion on certain levels. Well, good point. Right. No, in terms of gothic, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the ugly person falling in love. I, thematically, you're exactly and, you right. Know, I mean, wow, good point. Uh, so, you know, I mean, obviously, that's a common thing. That's Beauty and the Beast. That's many things. But Which was the same season as Passion. Oh, yes. Like, yes. Okay, th- this is this is so fascinating. I'm so glad you're here. Sondheim brings the idea to Lapine because from what I understand, Sondheim's like, this guy's a romantic. He'll understand what I'm going yeah. for. They feel like it's only going to be a one act. Right. Right. It's not going to be a two act musical. And Lapine at this point was already thinking of creating this uh, a, a one act musical himself called Muscle. Right. which was based on this autobiography by a, a bodybuilder, mm. somebody who like was really scrawny and then put on all of this muscle and was, you know, it was trying to become a man. And then when he was at his biggest, he still felt like he was small, right. And, mm. and insignificant and insecure. And so they thought, Oh, this is going to be a great companion piece. Muscle eventually goes away because Sondheim felt like it needed more of a contemporary score, like a a William Finn type situation. And all of their energy then decides to just stick with passion, which remains a one act, but is almost two hours long. So we're not, even though it's a one act, it's not a 90 no at all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When it opens on Broadway, I mean, you were there amidst the press. What, what, how did everybody respond to this show? Well, um, the word on the street or whatever um, was so bad during previews. Was it really? There were all these stories about people laughing inappropriately at... Um, uh, at Donna Murphy? At, at, well, not so much at Donna, but at Fosca's sort of over uh you know overbearing like desperation desperation um verging on pathetic totally there was also uh people were complaining you know i mean it really i mean in you know into the woods and sunday the park with george in so many ways were such departures from not only the hal prince collaborations but from hello dolly and like just from musical theater in general Right. But they still had like normal sort of form and, you know, applause breaks and all that. Songs. Yeah. And, you know, Passion was really this sort of uh, swirling song cycle that had no applause break uh, until the curtain call. And, uh, you know, people were really, and yet, you know, it was produced, unlike Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park with George, that both began uh, either off Broadway or regionally. Passion just opened cold on Broadway. You know, and but at the same time, there was also press coverage. I remember I remember seeing um, on like whatever, like local TV news, uh, you know, clips of Donna singing 
oh, because this was the beginning of the internet. It wasn't like it is today. It, what There was no Broadway world. There was no talk in Broadway. But there was a these things called news groups. And there was a thing called rec.arts.theater.musicals, which was the original theater message board. And, uh, oh, gosh. And I was like in college and, you know, I would go religiously uh, reading that stuff. But so I had been disappointed because I had been thinking, oh, well, this is perfect. Even though Patty won't do Sunset on Broadway, I was sad about that. Maybe she'll do this new awesome. Sondheim musical, which right. I was excited about. And then I was like, Donna Murphy? Who the hell is Donna Murphy? Is mm-hmm. um, but then the word on these message boards was that Donna, from the very beginning, was giving the performance, uh, you know, a star-making performance. and A performance uh, that I feel changes musical theater forever by the way. I I want to hear more about that, but I can see that, you know, why you would say that. Tell me. Um, I mean, we'll talk more about it in the, when we go through the show, but the fragility that she's bringing to some of the most highly dramatic moments, it is not a histrionic performance mm. because of how weak the character is. So she's like singing at the top of her range while sitting, while in pain. And like, you don't do that in musical theater. If you are having a breakdown as Mama Rose, you are downstage center physicalizing every moment. And she is upstage sitting behind a table struggling to stir her coffee because she's in so much pain and it's still seeping out of her. Yeah. You didn't see that in musicals, period. No, no. So um, even whether you like it or not, it takes the art form into a completely new area. Yeah. Uh, Well, I certainly fell in love with her and that performance. I mean, yeah. you know, as I mean, as did almost everyone. It was so, um, you know, whatever rivalry there was between passion and beauty and the beast, there was no question, I think, on anyone's mind that Donna was going to win that Tony. Um, oh, for sure. For sure. So Passion opens on Broadway, same season as Beauty and the Beast. So, uh, I mean, God bless Disney for, in many ways, pumping some money back into the old Broadway machine. Um, You know, Beauty and the Beast was so uh, looked down upon because, you know, in a way with Lion King and Julie Taymor, Disney has sort of has like a trace of like, well, they're just another producer. Every producer is corporate nowadays. Maybe they will do something interesting or maybe they won't. Right. You know, but with Beauty and the Beast, people really acted like it was just like a theme park, like like Disney on ice, you know. Yeah. um, no, and uh, people held their noses, as we tend yeah. to do in theater, I didn't even see it because I was such a snot when Did I was you 17. Not? And now oh. I'm like so mad at myself that I didn't see it. Well, that's why, okay, so this Tony Awards was the first Tony Awards I ever tuned into, and it was because of Beauty and the Beast, because Hello obsessed with uh, Beauty and the Beast growing up. Didn't want my parents to see this like musical number of two people in bed from Passion, but like we were there for, we were there for Beauty and the Beast. So I remember seeing this. I remember passion winning. I remember, even though I I didn't know anything about it, I was like, oh, well, it's obviously the more serious choice. Like, this is just how it goes, right? (laughs) Like, if you're you're doing the cartoon musical, it's probably not going to win. I I, I was pretty young, but I remember just kind of understanding that. And that's what happens. Beauty and the Beast only wins best costume design. Passion wins best musical, book, music, or score, actress, um, Carousel is the revival with yes. Audra and McDonald making her get to big. See that, did you? Oh my gosh! I'm very grateful for it. It was the other big kind of thing. A lot of yeah. 
sex being introduced into musical theater in the 90s because Carousel was like infamously sexy. This was yeah, like a sexy revival. It sure was. Uh, then you also had Passion, uh, Hello Again, all of the Michael John LaCusia stuff. So like, yeah. you know, there, there's a lot more heat in musical theater at this point as well. Um, despite all of that heat, Passion still holds, I think, the record for the best musical winner that runs the shortest. It only mm-hmm. ran about 300 performances, which yeah. isn't terrible. I think it recouped its its budget, but still uh, did not run long, as most Sondheim shows, unfortunately, uh, did. But thank did goodness they... Did recoup? I would be surprised. I thought most Sondheim shows didn't recoup. Well, I, I mean, I thought I read that it did, but maybe maybe, maybe not. Maybe in three, maybe with only three hundred. I mean, it's just such like a sparse looking show that I thought maybe. Well, the the production values didn't require too much of it. Maybe it didn't though. Here, I mean, I think I mean, a lot of right. them recoup long term because mm, sure, they, sure. they're produced elsewhere and you know all that. Um, yeah, but I don't think it would be. It wasn't considered a failure or a flop. Well, it's in that weird Sondheim category that kind of all his shows are. I mean, my understanding was that the only show of Sondheim's that recouped was, besides West Side Story and Gypsy, was mm-hmm. a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Wow. Um, and and yet, you know, I mean, that people use the phrase uh, success d'esteem. Uh, and that and that's the difference they draw between something like Merrily, which is just like an out and out flop, even though we all kind of esteem it anyway, and something like Sunday in the Park with George that literally wins the Pulitzer and mm-hmm. you know is so acclaimed, even if it's um, polarizing, but uh, but loses money. Isn't that interesting though? Because then on some level, uh, this may be controversial, but I think maybe as artists, then we start to esteem shows that aren't successful financially and look down upon the ones that are, you know, because even, well, I think even growing up, careful. I was like, even growing up, I tend to roll my eyes at Phantom of the Opera because it was the show that everybody yeah. had seen. And I was like, if you're going to go to New York, see something that you could only see in New York, right? Phantom, yeah. you can see anywhere. Well, but looking back on it, notion. I've complete, but I've also completely changed my mind, you know, because if you want Phantom of the Opera to be your first show on Broadway, like who the hell am I to say you shouldn't do that? Totally. Totally. Well, listen, everyone should do what they want. But I mean, I think I think it goes both ways. I mean, I think that we have to, um, you know, I think it's important that artists push the envelope of what theater can be. And then we who are artists and theater lovers, our taste is what elevates the form. But at the same time, we not need to not be like Pat, you know, rejecting shows because they're commercially successful because of mm. course a, a good show can be a hit and a, a certainly a bad show can be a flop mm-hmm. amen to that that's so true and luckily with passion i mean they were so inspired to to record it and record it so beautifully on film mm. uh because that has certainly extended its cultural footprint for me i think for both of us yeah uh if not everybody so let's talk through this really interesting show because there's so much here and we're already running out of time. <laughs> so the show opens with maybe one of the most beautiful pieces of music I think mm. Sondheim wrote called Happiness. And the irony here of how he uses music to access emotions within us as an audience is fascinating because this song, obviously talking about the throes of passion, that first spark when you feel like you have met the person that you will always love forever. And you, and these two lead characters, Giorgio and Clara, are in bed. 
uh, beautiful people. Clara played originally by the glorious Marin Maisie, who, I mean, in this recording is just constantly walking back and forth, sounding beautiful in these amazing costumes. I don't know how she did it. I mean, honestly... Walking and singing is not easy. <laughs> there's pretty much no one I want to hear sing Clara. I know. Instead of Marin Maisie. I don't think <sighs> I... It's like... I, in, I mean, she and Donna were both a new sound in musical yes. theater. They were and, both understudies at this point, right? Yeah, and and but they really had their own vocal style. And Marin, there's just nobody. I mean, some people are kind of in the neighborhood of her, like the Carolee Carmelos and Barbara Cooks, and in some ways Audra, who also played Clara. Mm-hmm. But the the fullness and sensuality of Marin's voice in that role and in mm. that opening number Sensual where there's just the two of them in that stage, you don't, you're not at all disappointed not to have a hundred, you know, high kicking chorus girls. Marin's voice is that alive. And, and that, I don't care if you have Kathleen Battle, Rebecca Luker, nobody could sing it more beautifully than Marin Maisie. And yet it's also so full and so exciting and so dynamic. I mean, it's just, and so expressive and conversational. It's yeah. an ideal Sondheim voice. Yeah, I I just, I miss her so much, and she's just absolutely fantastic in this. As Giorgio and Clara are in bed, there's this feeling, I, I, I don't know if you feel this, but for me, there's this feeling of this is going to end, right? There's an inevitability to this happiness, because they they almost preach a little too much. Endless happiness. Endless happiness yeah, is how right, the song right, ends, right? right like, right. this couldn't possibly end with the way that I'm yeah. feeling. But it does because he follows, I mean, the end of the song is basically him saying, I've been moved. I am going to serve in the military somewhere else, uh, but we're going to write each other letters. Now, little do we know, she is married. Clara is married. So this is an affair. When he goes to his new post, he's surrounded by men, only men. And Sondheim has this really great juxtaposition in the score of there's either drums or there's lush music. Mm. And so whenever he's around all the soldiers, we just, it's all military, military madness. And, (laughs) (laughs) and here within this military, military group is the Colonel whose cousin Fosca lives with him. She is very, very ill. She has this kind of full-time doctor who's always taking care of her and she suffers from these kinds of seizures. So they'll be going about their business and they'll just hear this like guttural scream from upstairs, kind of like in a Jane Eyre sort of way. And everyone's used to it. But but for someone as sensitive as Giorgio, I think that it's uh, it's difficult for him to kind of deal with that. He hears that Fosca's really interested in books. So as an avid reader, he allows her to borrow his books. And this becomes the connection for those two. She finally comes down the stairs uh, in a very grand operatic way, to thank Giorgio for the books that he gave her. One of the ones that we find out, she says, um, uh, thank you for the book by Rousseau. Julie is a is a great mystery. Yeah. So I, I looked this up, the book by Rousseau. Have you read it? Like, I, I, I'm, this is not something I do. I do not read these books. No. Okay. Uh, the character so, Julie is a total mystery. To she's a big mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so I did some research because I, I was like, okay, what is the, there has to be a reason they picked this book. This book was 
specifically incredibly scandalous because it was instructing people to follow the customs and traditions of society as long as it felt authentic to you. And the character of Julie is someone who ends up following her passion. Mm-hmm. So even right here is this like cool little uh, planted moment. They are connecting over some over a character, over someone who is willing to follow what their heart says more so than maybe what society tells them. Yeah. Now, how do you feel about this beautiful, ugly sort of thing? How do you feel like that has aged? Because Clara, which the word means light, and Fosca, which the word means dark, are definitely supposed to be opposites. One's beautiful, one's ugly and ill. Um, I, I think that's a kind of universal, uh, eternal plight, you know, and uh, I think it's aged very well. I, I think that, you know, I, honestly, I mean, even the most beautiful people have ways in which or times when they don't feel beautiful or they feel ugly, whether mm-hmm. that's something internal or external. I think that, you know, everyone has that kind of um, insecurity. And so in the sort of like fable aspect of the story, it just really resonates. Um, it's very Italian. It's very European, right? Yeah. This idea of exploring it through the carnal, I guess, expectations of what it mm-hmm. means to be human. I will say, though, that even though Fosca is, like, traditionally ugly, they've given her, like, one palette. They just, like, caked her down with one yeah. uh, one makeup base <laughs> and yeah. have a big old nasty mole yeah. on her. Yeah. But what's incredible, and, and I don't know. Don't forget the and, unibrow. Oh, the unibrow, of course, <laughs> of course. But I will say that she gets more beautiful throughout the show, and I don't know if they change that. Like, I don't know if they, in, yeah. a, if an, in an alphabet way, they, like, start adding elements to make her look more glamorous i'd be interested to hear donna talk about that i mean yeah the more that we see her i think the more she becomes beautiful and the more that we see clara the more that everything we thought was perfect about her begins to fall away and there's something kind of profound about that yeah no i think that's maybe what we're supposed to experience you know 100 percent so as they uh, as they connect by the way got a shout out i read one of my favorite Mm. um sondheim songs of all time yeah there's a flower uh, with nectar at the top, delicious nectar at the top, and poison underneath. The butterfly that, what is it? The butterfly who stays, stays too, too long, long and drinks too deep is doomed to die. Like, it, it's <laughs> the amount of information we get about Fosca by hearing about why she reads, how she does it not to explore humanity, but to escape from humanity. Yeah is kind of unparalleled. I, I, this is a true soliloquy that is absolutely phenomenal. Totally. And also, you know, it, I mean, people talk about Sondheim songs don't work out, out of context. But mm. here is like, people have not written many or any songs about reading. Um, here's this incredible ode to it. And also, I mean, certainly for me, as someone who was buying that album, like the day it came out in 1994, <laughs> being like, what is it going to be? Is there, is there going to be another losing my mind or not a day goes by, you know, Yeah. another Broadway baby and wishing that it was Patti Lapone, And then hearing Donna Murphy just like belt her face off in this thrilling and really emotional and unique and authentic way. You know, it was, I was immediately hooked, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, and this is what I was talking about beforehand. I read, she's sitting down the entire time upstage. Mm. 
just letting these cracks show forth, if you will. And I think that that is what is so challenging about Fosca is that she's so willing to let all of the ugly out. Yeah. Um, not just in terms of she's not plucking that unibrow, but <laughs> she she's willing to kind of show warts and all. Oh, my gosh. All of the puns just keep coming out. Um, and I think that that's incredibly confronting for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much that I think the moment that I realized that passion it's almost like the more important thing about passion is what we discuss after seeing the show than when that we experience while we're seeing the show. Thank is you, when John I heard, Bukino. Is, is when I heard, <laughs> exactly, is when I heard the song Playbill by John Bukino, which many people may not have heard it. Basically, what he's done is created a song in which somebody has seen passion, has the playbill, and then meets somebody. And the person singing the song hates Fosca feels like she's pathetic and and then slowly in a very Sondheim way reveals how similar they are to Fosca. It's I I love this song so so yeah, much. And funny enough it was introduced to me by Patty Lapone in her Matters yes, of the Heart album. Yes. So like how how beautiful is that? I flashed the playbill from that Sondheim show still too present in my you asked if I'd just seen that Sondheim show And didn't I love it And isn't it encouraging that love can be blind I laughed and said one hates that leading character In proportion to how desperately they've shown their own need I said I really loved that character And you graciously Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As Giorgio and Fosca get closer, she begins to, <clears throat> like we said, really let all of her her true self be seen, not just her ill self. And and we learn why she has reached the point where she is health-wise. It's due to um, this really traumatic past in which she was raised to believe she was beautiful. She had these parents who were like, oh, our beautiful princess, you're you're so amazing. And then she grew up and reached puberty and realized, oh, I'm, I'm not. Mm-hmm. And then in that moment of like, insecurity and and kind of discovery this uh this dude count ludovic of austria (laughs) comes in and he's a total slime ball and he says you are the most beautiful thing i've ever seen their parents her parents are thrilled that this man wants to be with her so uh uh the colonel her cousin invites them all over to his place they all hit it off and in no time 
the count has asked for her hand in marriage. The parents have paid the dowry. He gambles the dowry away. And now her parents are left destitute. She's alone. He's somewhere. Nobody can find him. And she's, she feels ruined. She feels completely ruined and suffers this enormous emotional and physical breakdown in which now the doctor describes her as having all of her nerves on the outside of her skin. Mm. I love that so much. Yeah. Where like we have skin that protects our hearts and our feelings and she doesn't have anything. It's all exposed all the time. Uh, the colonel, that's why he has invited her to live with him is because on some level he feels responsible for her because he allowed this meeting to happen in his place with the count. And so ever since, she's just been battling and battling this pain, this deep, deep pain. The only reprieve from all of that pain is this new connection with Giorgio. And he doesn't feel comfortable with it. He's constantly writing Clara to be like, there's this crazy, ugly girl. All she does is make me think of you and how much I miss you because she's kind of obsessed with me and I don't know what to do with her. The doctor on the other hand, is telling Giorgio, can you please give her a little kindness? Can you please just play along with Fosca? It'll, it's innocent, it's fine, and it will make her feel better. As the doctor, I'm asking you to give her this medicine, which is your time and attention. Unfortunately, it just keeps escalating to a place of almost obsession. Have you ever been, Ben, either Fosca or Giorgio in this situation? <laughs> I got it. I'm sad to say I've been Fosca more than I've been Giorgio, but I've been both. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Which I think is why the show is so confronting. We can hate the characters so much because on some subconscious level, I think we totally. see ourselves in everybody. Totally. This obsession culminates one night kind of on a cliffside where Fosca is asking for a kiss. And he's like, is this what you call love? Like he really confronts her and, and puts her in a place she falls over. She like basically faints, which just feels almost manipulative, but like, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, he picks her up and takes her back to the room, but it's like a very stormy night and he falls ill and and has a fever and a fever dream, by the way, of like Fosca on top of him taking advantage. And this illness allows him to have a leave of absence where I'm kind of skipping a little bit, but uh, to take 40 days absence. And so he uses that time. A whole 40 days. A whole 40 days to to go visit Clara. The thing is, is though, is that like she is still married. She's still very practical about like 40 matinees because it's only one. Because they can't. Exactly. They can't spend an evening together because she's married. And he and on some level for Giorgio, he's like, this is all very convenient for you, mm-hmm. isn't it? I'm just this guy that you can have in the afternoons and then you go back to your regular life. And when he looks at that from the perspective of Fosca, who is anything <laughs> but convenient, no. right? She does whatever she feels, no matter how stupid she may look. Mm. It, it really challenges what he thinks love is. And so he then puts the challenge back on Clara, leave your husband, come with me. And she can't do it. She can't do it. And she says, when my child grows and, and leaves home, maybe we'll have yeah. a chance. But like, yeah. until then, maybe this is goodbye. Now, in the process, Fosca has many opportunities to express her love. Do you have anyone, any of them that you'd like to talk about? I mean, they're all incredible um, and gripping. The one that really like has been my favorite from the very beginning is I Wish I Could Forget You. 
Um, mm. which, which is course, before he one of the before one of the times he leaves, and she forces him to write this letter as though he loves her. Yes, yes. And because he's pressured by the doctor, he goes along with it. Yeah. And so it's her singing what she wishes he would say to her. And, um, you know, but in a way it's Fosca's I Want song. I mean, mm. and it's just, uh, I, I, you know, I, I love songs like that, that have, because it's a letter, it's really, uh, you know, and I guess in a way it's more presentational because it's, yeah. it has a very That's clear true. structure to it. And I think it's a, a, a gorgeous song and it just, I'll never forget. I'll never forget watching Donna do that for the first time and just feeling her, the way that her voice would just like build and build and soar into the passion that she feels, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the way uh, she, it's like she allows herself to live in this fantasy, even though of course it's a fantasy. I mean, he, but he's indulging it, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's feels so powerful and real. And, and, and it also is a, it a little bit is a, um, a reflection of that kind of relationship because so much, you know, I mean, she says to him at another time, like, oh, how you, how indulgent you are with me. I mean, (laughs) to some extent, you know, these relationships are like that where, the person who loves less or loves not at all, but in, you know, on some level they're encouraging this because it's convenient for them or they enjoy the attention or, or they're they, afraid to not to. Yeah. You know, to. and so they play a role and um, this is kind of just like that taken to an extreme uh, level. My favorite part of, I wish I could forget you is that he's, you know, sitting there dictating or writing everything that she dictates and the only time he sings is he echoes something she says, which that doesn't he, mean I love you. Yeah, yeah. She she right. She tells him to write. That doesn't mean I love you. And that's the only time he sings, as though Brilliant. to say, "This is the part that I want yeah. you to remember." Yeah. Right. Uh, it's so great. When he comes back, now kind of being fully haunted by the love of this woman. Well, also to have that someone is so obsessed with you, who's wants your love and with more than anything in the world, more than life itself to then go back to the matinees with the woman who's like, okay, you know, are you going to come soon? Cause I got to pick up my kid at, you know, soccer practice or whatever, Hello. you know, right. <laughs> fill in the 19th century Italy version. But yeah. it's like, it's one thing to be in, in the first scene, you know, like endless love and it's so hot and it feels like it'll last forever. But then to be seeing it in contrast to, Maybe you don't want this love from Fosca, but you want that kind of love from from the Somebody. person you want it from. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's just it's truly a, a perspective shift, right? Everything mm. that you thought was love might just be lust. Everything that you thought was uh, uh, lacking true passion is actually the deepest form of yeah. being loved and being seen. Um, yeah. Anyway. Oof. When when Giorgio comes back to Fosca after kind of cutting his sick leave short, I think the doctor feels r- incredibly guilty about what he's done because he thought that this was just, you know, a way to make Fosca feel better. But he is possibly ruin- ruining two lives by yeah. continuing the charade and pleads for Giorgio to, like, stop. But at this point, he's in too deep, and he feels this deep responsibility for someone who loves him this much. 
that un- unfortunately comes to a head when the colonel finds out about their relationship. He finds this letter that we have yeah. discussed. And Giorgio very well could have said, she made me write it. But out of her honor, he decides to to not say that. And what the colonel does is challenges him to a duel. Says, all right, you know, we're, we're going to hash this out like men. Yeah. <laughs> I roll. Before the duel, however, there is this now famous love scene where he he goes to Fosca's room and uh, and wants to like do the deed. He wants to seal it. And he says that he loves her and I don't question it. Mm. I don't know. It's complex. It's interesting that this is like the romantic show of Sondheim's because it also feels claustrophobic and tragic and like love will ultimately kill you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, People have often talked about, like, the love songs in Sondheim are always sung by an idiot. Um, I mean, in a little bit, happiness and passion is kind of an example of that. But, you know, they often talk about in Funny Thing Happened the Way the Forum or the young couples in Follies or uh, the lovers in Sweeney Todd. Um, And it's like, well, maybe they don't have to be an idiot, but they have to be uh, a little out of their mind. Sick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but maybe we are. Yeah. Right? Maybe yeah. we are a little crazy to to put ourselves through all everything that requires to love and be loved. But like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if you f- feel that it's worth it, then you're a romantic. Yeah. So they do the deed. He basically sexes her to death. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the feeling is like so great. Uh, but he then has to go to this duel the colonel and him do their, you know, paces turn and shoot. The colonel has a, a like a, a wound, but isn't it's not fatal. And what happens to Giorgio? Like, why does he why does he pass out? Does he have a worse wound? Maybe. God, I don't even now. remember. Now I'm trying to remember the specifics. But for whatever reason, he passes out and doesn't come to for a, a few days. Yeah. When when he does, uh, Fosca has passed away. Yeah. But not before she wrote him one more letter, so many letters in this show, Mm. uh, where, and I love this so much, she says in this letter that for the first time in her life, she wants to live. Mm. And like reflecting on that, after you've had so much pain and you're waiting for death, it's only that when you want to live, it's because of love. And when you want to live, then you can die. Mm -hmm. And... If we all need to pause and eat some chocolate after that, that's okay, because that's kind of intense. But Fosca passes away saying, I now love, I know what it feels like to be loved. You gave that gift to me. And now that love will live in you. It will live in me and it will live forever. And Sondheim did this beautiful kind of round Mm. with all of the voices of the cast helping us feel that this love mm. lives on, right? Yeah. And I think there are a lot of powerful musicals out there, like Parade, like Cabaret, where we see the reverberations of hate. But we we don't always have something so poetic showing the reverberations of love. No. 
And the shows that are about love tend to take a more superficial view of it. Um, mm-hmm. And this that is actually like a true um, introspection on, you know, the meaning and the role uh, and the nature of love is is really, uh, you know, uh, special. Yeah. Maybe the the most quote unquote love song of the score is called is a song called "Loving You," which was the last song that Sondheim wrote for the show. Yeah, um, they felt like they needed one more, just like I don't know, song song. Yeah, and do you feel like this passes the test in terms of uh, the criticism you were spe- you were speaking of earlier? It's not maybe a, a stupid person talking about love. Uh yeah, I do. I I think it's a it's a it's part of the reason that I would say passion achieves that. Um, I mean, truthfully in that moment in loving you, we're not supposed to think she's pathetic and we're not supposed to, well, I don't know what we're supposed to think, but the, no. I don't think the intention she's of empowered. It, she's empowered and it's not that she's sick, you know? So maybe that's sometimes most naked, pure, uh, love song, you know? Well, and going back to how we started the conversation, you think of the words of this song from, the place of a gay man who's realizing his own sexuality. Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. Yeah. Loving you is not, is not in my control. Right. But loving you, I have a goal for the rest of my life. I will live and I will die for you. Now, granted, we should probably never (laughs) hang all that up on one person, but the idea, the idea of self-expression and the freedom to do so is incredibly empowering for Fosca as it would be for anybody discovering their sexuality. And it's, it also, I mean, if for, it's not that, um, well, she does say you are why I live, but, um, sure. but all that, like, um, loving you, I have a purpose for what's left of my life. It, it's not that you're my purpose. It's that loving you is my purpose. So it is at mm. least a little bit more self-actualizing in that. Yeah. And also she's sick and has been through a lot of trauma. So like, if it's a little blurry, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> What are you left with with this show? How did you walk out of the theater? Were you like on cloud nine? Were you like, what did I just see? It was that you're pretty wonderful. young at this point. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I had just turned eighteen. I was. Um, I mean, it's the way I always feel when I see this show. It has that sort of um, romantic uh, Romeo and Juliet, you know, tragic love, where it's like, you know, the romantic in me wants love with all, even with all of that baggage and danger. So, uh, you know, I, I don't walk out. I mean, I'm sad because yet another love story has come to an end. That sounds like a lyric, but, um, <laughs> but I'm mostly just smitten with the idea of this, this great love, you know? Um, and that's why passion is not a show um, that I'm always in the mood for. Amen. You know, I have to want mm-hmm. to like, I can't watch know. passion casually. I have yeah. to be in a place to be like, okay. And like, just get sort of like, you know, swirled up into this rapture. Um, Can I say something weird? And I don't know if you want to be my therapist and tell me what this means, but <laughs> I am. Tell me what I you am, dreamt and I'll tell you what it meant. <laughs> I am rarely in the mood for passion with other people. Yeah. Like. I remember being in San Francisco doing a show and I was riding the BART a lot, the public transit. Mm-hmm. And it was in those rides that I was like, I am going to listen to all of the cast recordings of Passion and figure out which one's my favorite. And so for like three days straight, I just listened to 
all of the different recordings of Passion to, to see what I liked about each one. And I don't think I would do that in a car with someone else. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have to be on my own, reflecting in a car, on the public transit with my headphones in, whatever, to kind of really get into this. Um, I just don't, I can't picture myself, like, holding my lover in bed, sobbing, listening to Passion. No. Like, that. I just don't, <laughs> no. I don't, I don't need that drama in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it would be like that, you know. Well, it, it's very, it's very personal, that. It's very thing. personal. That's, that, that is, that's it. That's the thing. Ben, thank you so much for doing this with me. How much fun. Can you believe we've already talked this long? Uh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, I love your your conversations about musicals and the, mm-hmm. all the angles you, you come from. It, it's wonderful. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, the best way to do so is by reviewing and rating, hopefully with a positive one, uh, wherever you listen to it. We also have Patreon exclamation point, where for only $1 a month, you can receive bonus episodes made exclusively for you. We're also on social media. Check us out on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. More than anything, I just want you to know that you are loved, and I'm so grateful you're part of this great podcasting community. Hey, Mr. Ben, how do we follow you, and uh, anything you want to plug? Well, you can follow me on all social media at Ben Rimmelauer. That's only one M, only one L, (laughs) R-I-M-A-L-O-W-E-R. And uh, you can find uh, my new podcast, Giants in the Sky, How Sondheim and Lapine Went Into the Woods, on Broadway Podcast Network and everywhere that you get your podcasts. Everybody, check it out. Ben is a true joy. Um, And check out his social media, too. You're kind of killing it. I'm I'm a little jealous. Thank you. Truly, truly. You got you got cute stuff on there. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And uh, remember and remember you're someone to be loved. (laughs) You are someone to be loved. I was going to say read a book, but, but but you're right. You are someone to be loved. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.